fuera presidente Welcome to the Radical Bureaucrat, a podcast for people who want to change institutions from the inside. Today is Monday, April 27th, and there are a few things that are heavy on my mind today. Uh, this weekend, my wife, Naima, listened to an earlier episode of the Radical Bureaucrat podcast from March 18th. And she told me that on that day, we said there were 10 reported deaths in New York City. As of this morning, the number is 11,648. That is a tremendous loss of life that would not have happened in any other year of my lifetime. And in news around the country, Georgia and other states are moving to reopen and uh, or have already reopened. As the data has clearly shown, this virus is magnifying existing inequalities. So the people of Georgia who are most concerned about the reopening are black folks in Southwest Georgia. The Washington Post carried this quote this weekend from a city commissioner in Albany, Georgia, that's being hit really hard. He said, to open up businesses where it's impossible to practice social distancing, hair salons, nail salons, theaters, people are like, what? You want to put everybody in a closed room and that's supposed to be okay? For black folks, it's like a setup. Are you trying to kill us? Yeah, that's right. Uh, the New York Times uh, also ran a story about uh, University Hospital in central Brooklyn, which serves uh, largely black and poor patients uh, in the eastern part of Brooklyn. Uh, and uh, they don't have the protective gear that they need in their building, which is a story we've heard about a lot. Uh, and the building, you know, a story we haven't heard about a lot, is literally falling apart. Hospitals in some parts of the city are, are the, the facilities themselves. Um, you know, are in need of repair. Uh, one doctor started a GoFundMe campaign for the personal protective equipment, PPE, that they needed. And in contrast, the story in the Times says wealthy private hospitals, primarily in Manhattan, have been able to marshal reserves of cash and capital clout to increase patient capacity quickly, ramp up testing, and acquire protective gear. At the height of the surge, the Mount Sinai Health System was able to enlist private planes from Warren E. Buffett's company to fly, to fly in coveted N95 masks from China. Yeah. So the grief is real um, and it is clearly not equally born. Uh, so today we're going to talk to a friend of mine who just wrote a powerful and courageous piece about his own grief and about how this crisis impacted his, his life and his family's life. Colin Seal is the founder and CEO of Think Law, an organization that helps educators teach critical thinking to all students using real life legal cases. He's a native of Brooklyn, and he, his own story of growing up and navigating the public school system directly impacts his approach to tackling educational inequity today. He's the author of a new book. Congratulations, Colin. Yeah, congrats. Thinking Like a Lawyer, a framework for teaching critical thinking to all students. And personally, I really have great admiration for Colin for his willingness to take risks, his intellectual curiosity, and his ability to inspire others. Colin, welcome to the show. Welcome to the show, Colin. Thanks so much, Sam and Abram. Really excited to be able to share this really important story and provide maybe a more personal context for some of the numbers that you've been mentioning as you kicked off the intro. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Looking forward to the conversation. 
Um, so we used to ask our guests, how are you, just to kind of like check in. To, and, you know, I, I, I still do do that with friends a lot. Just try to see, like, how are you actually doing before I hit you with all the stuff I want to ask you about. Um, but then uh, re- recently we've been rethinking that. And, and it just so happens that this weekend The Atlantic um, uh, put out this article, What to Ask Instead of How Are You? Uh, it's uh, <laughs> What to Ask Instead During a Pandemic Everyone's Doing Badly. Uh, we need better questions to ask. That's Ashley Fetters for The Atlantic. Um, so instead of asking how you're doing, uh, what we've been asking guests about is what they're grieving. This is a tough question, I know, in your case because of, of having read what you wrote on Medium. Um, you wrote this great uh, analysis, really, um, walking through you know, your anger and even taking your own uh, sort of responsibility for your own part, right? Your own complicity and being angry at yourself, which I appreciated. Um, uh, can you tell us a little bit uh, about what you're grieving? And if you'd like to, if you feel comfortable, uh, you can tell us about your grandmother and who she continues to be for you and, and how uh, the grieving process is going for your family. So I think it's interesting. I, I, I think it's just maybe part of the, whether it's the lawyer in me or just a contrarian thinker in me, that when I see certain things like that piece around um, other things to ask other than like, how are you doing? I, I think, I think, I think we should still ask. I, mm. I, I think it still matters. Like, yeah. yes, like none of us are are doing like phenomenally well <laughs> yeah. during the times that we're facing right now. However, mm. you know, we're not actually all in the same boat. This, this is hitting people a little bit differently. Yeah. And, and I think that in some cases we might let ourselves off the hook if, if, if we don't actually like ask, like what, like, how are you? Like, just have 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 that real legit sort of personal check yeah. with folks yeah, and that connection. What, yeah, yeah. Right, I'm going to debate you for a quick second, Mr. Lawyer. Just in defense okay. of the okay. So the the uh, I think I think you're right. I, I actually think that like most things were were totally aligned on this. I think the point of the piece is that we often say, "How are you?" and the response is, "I'm fine. I'm right. good." Yeah, you know, that's and, not the real. And what you're saying yeah. is really check in with people, mm-hmm. yes. right? You know, yes. I was on a call earlier today and the facilitator was like, hey, how you doing? You good? Right. Well, the answer is, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> right. You know, but but is there a, I think what you're saying is we need to really, really ask and and open up the space for people to say, how are they doing? Mm-hmm. Um, right. Because because really, we 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 don't really want to ask how people are. We're, we're using it as a substitute as like. You know what's up? Like, hey, like we're not really trying to ask, but mm-hmm. I, I, I think that there's value in actually having that check-in. So over the last few weeks, when people have asked me, like, you know, how are you? I, I would be honest. Like, I'm cycling between rage and inspiration. Mm-hmm. You know, looking at the mm-hmm. way that some of our first responders, some of our educators, just the way people are stepping up to the table, it's super inspiring. At the same time, I am so afraid for my family in New York City. I'm mm. so afraid of my mom who has to travel to work from Brooklyn to Manhattan every single day because mm. her employer isn't really trying to hear that work from home thing, even though my mom is a CPA. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like she's a CPA. Like mm. she can do that work from anywhere, but like it took until the very, very end for her to do this. And then on top of that, We've got this concern of my grandmother, my grandmother, Doreen Omida Seal, who passed away last Sunday at 89 years old, um, a few months away from her 90th birthday. 
my grandmother came to the United States in 1969 from Barbados. Um, all of my family is from Barbados, mm-hmm. mom, dad, all my aunts and uncles. And what, what really struck me about thinking about my grandmother's life is, you know, she, she's always she's always been the person to take care of everybody else, to take care of herself, just remarkably independent. Mm. And when I think about her life, when I think about like what it meant three to five years ago when she was diagnosed with dementia and slowly started to require 24 hour care, being able to set herself up in a position where as a woman who worked as a nurse's assistant in New York City, was mm-hmm. able to essentially set up her own money to be able to pay for 24-hour mer- medical care for five years? Mm-hmm. Who does that? That's mm-hmm. my grandmother. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. that, like, that, that, that sort of can-do, pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstrap mm-hmm. mythology. Like, right. my grandmother was a firm believer that that was, like, a real thing. Mm-hmm. Like, she, she, she right. lived and breathed this thing. So to feel like, at the end of the day, the same system that she came here for dreaming for an opportunity, mm-hmm. the same system that she brought family members in and just had this firm belief in, the same system took her life. It really took her life. Mm-hmm. This idea that like, you know, even though she's been in the house for a month and a half, just the back and forth that her caretakers had to take, that my mom had to take, it opened her up to risk. And when she contracted COVID-19 on Tuesday morning um, and ended up going to SUNY Downstate Hospital where the doctors really did fight diligently. And I'm gonna be honest with you, I'm not sure that that normally would have happened, but for the fact that one of my best friends that I happened to go to, to high school with, we both went to Bronx High School of Science and he, he became an anesthesiologist. He had a really good, his roommate from med school was actually a high up at SUNY Downstate. And he happened to do his residency at SUNY Downstate. So literally every single doctor at every single shift he spoke to. Mm. I've never been so much in contact with doctors before. And we had an unprecedented level of access. My grandmother was treated Mm. like a VIP. So even within that, I'm struggling with this idea that like, had my grandmother just been a random 89-year-old walking in there, I don't know that she would have made it to Sunday morning. I think that, mm-hmm. you know, it, it would have been a, a, a much shorter battle for her. But um, I'm really struggling with this. I'm, I'm, I'm really struggling with this concept that, like, as a nation, we, we, we are just letting so many people down. And you, you say those numbers, mm-hmm. but I think it's also important to understand that in my grandmother's neighborhood, there is a church, St. Mark's Episcopal Church. It was very hard for us to get a minister for her very small burial service in New York City this Saturday morning, because in the last two weeks, 17 people from this congregation have died oh. due to COVID-19 complications. So I'm like, you talk about people that are like, you know, poor to, you know, just did enough to be able to retire and sustain on a very fixed income in a mm-hmm. rent control apartment. Right. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about 17 people that I grew up seeing at the church all the time. Right. Like, yeah. these things don't just, it doesn't just happen by accident. So, like, when we start saying these numbers, like, I think it's important to start to start thinking about who these people are living mm-hmm. in Arizona right now. Yeah. You could talk about the numbers as a state. 
or you could talk about what's happening at the res. You talk about what's mm-hmm. happening at the Navajo res, you're like, whoa, like this is madness. So this yeah. idea of us being on the same boat, like we've got to really start thinking about like what those nuances look like. And it's hard. You know, this podcast being called the, the, the Radical Bureaucrat, it really resonates with me because if there ever was a time where radical leadership is needed, it's it's right now. Mm. It's right now. Because um, we have a lot of very questionable things going on. As, as, I, as I laid out in, in, in the Medium article, it, it's hard to run away from the logic of seeing what we knew by late January mm-hmm. and our, like, criminal failure to mm. act. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You in the article, just to put it out there, you 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 say in the article, I'm going between sadness and rage. And in your rage, you know, writing was uh cathartic or therapeutic for you, and you really put it out there very strongly. And you went very specifically after Trump and his supporters. Um, and at this point, I mean, it's circulated a little bit. I'm just wondering really out of curiosity, like how that was received. Because I thought that was a really brave move. And I, I know that you were just- Yeah, help of, us to calibrate. Said, uh, how much blowback will we get if we drop a similar targeted, uh, con- exactly. you know, well-worded, well-argued uh, piece like this? What what have you felt as the, as the wave? So let me step back for a second and recognize that when I wrote the sentence, I blame my granny's death on President Donald Trump the millions and millions of people who voted for President Donald Trump and its countless enablers, lackeys, and Mm co-conspirators. I'm not going to act like just putting that out there felt perfectly like free and liberating. I I, I, I did have a little moment of second guessing myself. And Mm -hmm. part of what I spoke about here is the fact that my grandmother was a believer in radical honesty, whether Mm. it was socially polite or not. She's a person Mm. that like, you know, if you happen to see her after putting on a few pounds, just don't even bother seeing her. Because she's going to tell you, hmm, you're looking real fat. And it's like, all right, that's really rude, but it doesn't even matter. She's not going right. to hold back. But at the end of the day, she is also going to always speak the truth. Right. So I thought in her memory, in her spirit, like, why not just lay it out there? Mm-hmm. And this kind of brings me back to like, you know, the, the, the person I was when I was in student government at Syracuse and the person I was when, you know, I was in my law school classrooms and we'd be having a conversation around whether it's gay marriage or affirmative action or whatever. I was like, you know, at the end of the day, I trust my analysis of the facts and, you know, come for me. Like, mm-hmm. come, come. Like, like, I don't really care. Like, being in the circles that I'm in, you know, working in schools with 30 states, We've got schools in West Virginia. We've got schools in Kentucky. Like, Hmm. I know that I work with a lot of educators who voted for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. That is what it is. Like, I I think that, you know, there's, I I laid out the different reasons and categories that people fall into of like why they decided to do that. But I'm not going to sit here and act like his incompetence hasn't led to this mass pandemic. Like, I'm going to call a spade a spade. This is on him. And because you elected him, it's on you. Hmm. And like, I'm not letting myself off the hook either. Right. I'm saying that like, I know that I didn't do as much as I probably should have done. Hmm. I, I really didn't. I, I, I really kind of shrugged my shoulders and said, wow, Trump is such a moron. There's no way this guy's going to get elected. 
Hmm. There's no way. There's no way. I didn't even give it any real credible thought. I didn't knock on anybody's doors and tell them to go vote. I wasn't on the phone. I wasn't offering rides to people to get them to the polls. Mm-hmm. No, I didn't do any of that stuff. Hmm. So I, I I recognize that it's it's not the, the most nuanced argument out there to say that, you know, Donald Trump caused my grandmother's death. But at the same time, within the same week, do you know how many times I'm texting, somebody is texting me like, Colin, my condolences about your grandmother. My grandmother just died too from the same damn thing. Mm-hmm. Well, what, what do you even say? Oh, oh, ditto. Like, what, what do you even say when you see the cycle going like so deep? It, it's very, very hard to deal with that level of like mass trauma, mass trauma. So I don't know, a girl I went to middle school with in elementary school, her mom used to make like a beef patty. She had a beef patty shop right on the street on, that, on Avenue D, mm-hmm. down the street from where I went to elementary school. She died. She's 38 years old and she died from COVID-19 complications. And I was like, yo, wow. like, this is like insane. I don't know a single person in New York that has not been personally impacted in their family mm-hmm. by this disease. So like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to blame massive incompetence. Like, no, there's no way I'm going to let that off the hook. And maybe it might cause some people to, 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 to think about me a little bit differently. Hmm. Okay. Okay, like, I, I can't, I, I can't ever feel afraid to say the truth, mm-hmm. the truth, especially recognizing my privilege to say the truth. I've got, you know, I got a little bit of a platform. I, I got people that listen to me. I, I've, I've rise to, to, to this, a certain level of, of influence within some sectors of, of education in particular. So why not? Mm-hmm. Why not? If, right. if, if, if if my truth can inspire others to act, then it's not just a privilege. It becomes a duty. Like hmm. I have to do it. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. That's, that's uh, profound. I'm going to, I think I'm going to replay that part a few times. So, um, we've seen from the data, um, that our black and indigenous people of color, our black native American, Latinx people, uh, and poor people have been disproportionately impacted by the virus. Now, disproportionately is kind of f- fancy language for unequal, right? Proportional um, would be equal, parity, right? Uh, that means that different groups are making it through this differently. We've seen that in the data, those of us that have seen the data and broken it down. Um, in that way, uh, the virus is kind of amplifying a lot of stuff that already was there, a lot of stuff that smart people have been pointing to uh you know with an airtight case for why for a long time um so as people who are kind of in different uh spots in the work to create a more equitable a more just education system how do we leverage this moment you know we spent so much time before in circles talking about disrupting we need to disrupt the system we need to disrupt and dismantle. And, and I do, I agree, we do. But the system is disrupted. Now what? <laughs> you know, what can we do now uh, to change the system before it reboots on us? So, I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot. Because even when we talk about right now the system being disrupted, 
I, I always scratch my head and I'm like, and yet still within mm-hmm. the disruption, it just hits a little bit differently. So I have my own business, minority owned business. I've got my own deal and I didn't get any money from the payment the paycheck protection program. Um, a lot of big businesses that are able to get private equity funds that are able to actually be publicly traded, like somehow, some way they were able to get millions and millions of dollars. Um, and I, I know so many people, so many people of color that are owning small businesses that we claim on one hand are so vital to the United States economy, but on the other hand, we, we just get rapidly, just like we have an open wound and they just start like just stabbing us even more into that open wound by showing us who's actually getting access to these funds. And they're not us. Um, and I don't even know how much data we're going to get in terms of what's disaggregated. Like, what are we even going to know? Yeah. About well, can I, the, can the, I jump yeah. in and give you some, some numbers right here? I just saw a story on CBS News. From the um, races of the business owners? Yeah, the PPP loan program, right? From, okay. Uh, Nine, roughly 95% of Black-owned businesses, 91% of Latino-owned businesses, 91% of Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander-owned businesses, and 75% of Asian-owned businesses stand close to no chance of receiving a PPP loan through a mainstream bank or credit union. Close to no chance? That shit should be our t-shirt. Like, no. that should be our t-shirt. Close to no chance. When it comes to anything related to, you know, people in the United States suffering generally... We got close to no chance. If this pain and suffering happening to people that have privilege, that people that 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 have access, we are screwed. We are totally screwed. So this is where it starts to kind of make me sort of like think back. And I'm like, all right, maybe the answer isn't disrupting the system more than it is acknowledging the need for us to have our own systems, mm. the need to actually acknowledge the systems that currently exist. When, when, when my family all came here, they came at a time where, where nobody really had access to credit. Mm. And what that meant was that they had this thing called a meeting. Other cultures call it a susu or whatever have you, but they would show up at church every Sunday and put 20 bucks or 50 bucks in a pot once a week. And then they would basically take turns figuring out who would get the money from the pot. If somebody Mm -hmm. had an unexpected death in the family or some sort of tragedy, like they might get moved up in the order. But this was this idea that like, nobody, nobody is going to take care of us. We are here and Mm -hmm. we are all we've got. We are all we've got. And you know, this is what pains me so much. Like, my grandmother had so much faith in this system. Mm. She had so much faith. So much faith. And I am almost like relieved of the confusion that her dementia, her dementia caused for her. Because had she been clear-headed and recognized the level to which she was being screwed over, I think it would have been just a very painful way for her life to end. Hmm. Wow. Thank you for sharing that powerful word. Um, 
Yeah, I think the um, the collective body, um, the collective black body, as Ta-Nehisi Coates puts it, the collective indigenous body um, has suffered these traumas. Um, and yeah, even now, as you're talking, I'm thinking, <sighs> I don't know. I, 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 I still don't really know how things work if we don't have a system to distribute things like food and medicine and education and electricity, things that won't be distributed fairly if we don't step in and, and do it in a fair way. Um, and how all of our attempts to do that up to today have failed miserably. And here we are. Here we are sitting at the, you know, at the apex of the failure of this yeah. uh, system uh, of the, you know, all built on these kind of written corpus of documents coming out of Europe. Right. So much so that if the end of the world, if this is the end of the world, like this is the failure of the written word to establish something sustainable for generations. And we've we are all we've got. We've got to go back to our circles, our oral traditions and start again. And figure out how and, to rebuild. And 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 let's be real. Like a, a part of this is understanding the way power works, right? The way, um, the way that we traditionally understand power isn't isn't always isn't always accurate. So I I, I think a lot about um, learning about the young lords and, and and learning this idea about like in, in the Bronx and Spanish Harlem, like they weren't doing garbage collection. What do they do? They just throw it out in the streets. Like, all right, y'all don't uh -huh. want to throw it. We just throw mm -hmm. it in the streets. You can have us having to stink trash out here in the summertime. Now y'all can't have any traffic coming by. And like it, it, that kind of action causes causes systems to change. We, 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 it, it's essentially like we've got to lay our bodies down on the tracks mm. and dare people to just run us over. Y'all are going to run us over anyway, so we might as well make a statement while we're doing it. Mm. And, and I think you know, at the end of the day, I'm not really sacrificing my life. I'm not really like, you know, maybe maybe a few people might not want to partner with Think Law or, you know, all those guys <laughs> on some real racial stuff or right, fine, uh -huh. whatever. Right. So but I'm not really like sacrificing opportunity right now. But like I, 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 I think often about like people like 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 a John Lewis, you know, folks who were like not just the first person in their family to go to college, but more than likely the first in that whole damn community. And what mm -hmm. do they do? They say, actually, I'm gonna go risk my life to make sure that people that I don't even know have a right to vote that I just got a couple of weeks ago because mm -hmm. of my age, right? So it's just like, when you start thinking about this, when you start thinking about like, you know, the, 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 the extent to which people need to sacrifice to get the kind of justice that we deserve, the kind of access that we deserve. Um, I don't know. I, I think we could all use a lesson in courage. We could all use yeah. a lesson in like remembering what it might have felt like to have that level of fear, fearlessness. Because hmm. it's been beaten out of us. Yeah. It's been sucked out of us systemically over the years. And yeah, we need it. Yeah, we need Colin, it. you are bringing so much to this conversation today. And, I, and I'm just so grateful for you sharing your story um, and, and being so raw and real about it. Um, we are going to, we're, we're at time, um, just about, unfortunately. I would love to keep it longer, but I, 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 made a, I told you how long it'd be. We're going to, we're under that commitment. 
I want to ask you, um, in, in the midst of all of this, is there anything that's bringing you a sense of calm? A sense of calm? Calm, yeah. It's just anything. It is like, <clears throat> I'm, I'm not one of those obsessively silver linings kind of people, mm -hmm. but I think that there's this idea that, well, I'm sitting over here, sitting on my grandfather's trust fund and somehow I'm, I deserve to be rich. And we've got these people that are busting their butts that we kind of thumb our nose at that are like, restocking groceries and like out there making sure people have what they need. I feel like it's reframing at least somewhat, at least on a very surface level, whose work is valuable mm -hmm. and how do we measure that? Mm -hmm. So I think that when we start thinking about conversations around like raising the minimum wage and like, you know, the inherent value of like people's labor I think there'll be a lot more energy around those conversations now. And, and that gives me a, a great sense of calm and hope um, that like we just don't take really hardworking people for granted because yeah. somehow we think we're better for them since our jobs. I, I once read it, it's like, you know, the difference between people that have to shower in the morning versus showering at night. Mm -hmm. If your mm -hmm. job doesn't require you to shower at night, you might not understand the struggle of what it looks like to really, really get in there and do the work that like a country depends upon to no end. So I, I think that's something that really, as someone that comes from a working class family where people busted their butts and, and got their hands dirty, it, it makes me feel like we're at a reconciliation period that, that should really reframe that in a positive way. Yeah. And um, so I wanna tell you that our last guest was uh, your college classmate, Jose Bilson. Is that right? You, you guys went to Syracuse together, right? Yes, sir. <laughs> I, thought, I thought so. So he said something similar in terms of, uh, you know, like not using the word silver lining, but but along those same lines. The other thing that I thought you might say, and you said this in your piece, was just writing. And I think, and you also showed us how writing and speaking your truth uh, is, is part of your process of dealing with this grief. And mm -hmm. so that act, I think you've modeled it for us. Um, so thank you for that. No problem. Thank you all so much for having me. Yeah, thanks, Colin. And Colin, is there um, anything that you, uh, where, where can people check you out, um, uh, look for your work, look for your book, uh, yeah. whatever you want to tell us? Yeah. So at the end of the day, this is all fueling my obsession with critical thinking even more. Um, my book, Thinking Like a Lawyer, a framework to teach critical thinking to all students, it actually officially drops on uh, April 30th, so this Thursday. And then um, we've got my website at thinklaw.us. And you could also follow me on Twitter at Colin E. Seal to just kind of keep in touch and keep this conversation going. Yeah. And it'll be up on the Radical Bureaucrat Twitter too. So you guys can find it there. Thank Thanks you so Colin. much, Colin, for telling your story. Thank you. No problem. Thank you. So they can ride to their future, not to their past. Go to the store, get some chips with no GMO. Because my folks, we got a right to know. And if you don't know, now you know. Me gusta la lima, me gusta el limón, pero no me gusta tanta corrupción.
All right, Sam. So let's end like good radicals. Uh, what is one thing that you learned today that you can use to create a more just and equitable world? I am just really sitting with what Colin brought today. Um, and, and I feel like there's so many things that I'm going to have to go back and, and listen and really reflect. A lot of a lot was coming up for me as he spoke. Um, I mean, I just want to start with the fact that he lost his his grandmother and is honoring her. Uh, and we're talking about grief right now and how mm -hmm. we process our grief. Yeah. And and I'm thinking about well, you know, this is a podcast about the workplace and how do we do that in the workplace and how do we create space for that and you know, Colin runs his organization so and he gets to in some sense set the terms for that but I think that again like we just need to keep creating space for people to express themselves the way that, that he just did um, yeah that can be tough I mean people I people sometimes feel like uh that's that's enough with the feeling circles, you know, we right. can go back to the real work or whatever. And I get it. I, you know, I'm not anti productivity, uh, although, you know, my my extreme skill of procrastination probably makes it seem like I am. I, I, I think we have to be willing sometimes to let let ourselves get, um, you know, let ourselves crash with the way, you know, the, let the wave crash over us, you know, and be, you know, and, and I think um, that is really hard to do right now. We're in, we're in week five of online meetings and we're stacked with meetings that we're not sure, you know, we're trying our best to like give what we have to give, but boy, it's hard. It's harder being in back-to-back -back Zoom meetings than it is going into an office. Um, that's what mm. I'm, that's what I'm realizing. Mm. Zoom um, fatigue is real. And uh and yeah, making space for grief. Uh, I tell you this, you're going to have a retention problem on your hands right now if you don't know how to allow people some way to like communicate what's happening with their grief and find accommodation that works for them while they go through that grief. Um, you know, mm. we. I think we're headed toward a place where people are really questioning their labor and what it really contributes to. And so um, yeah. making space for grief at work is so important. I think, I think what I, I, a lot of things, I, and I agree, I think I, there is a lot to sit with in, in this story in particular, and I'm going to have to go back and re-listen. Um, but out of the things that Colin said, I, I think one thing that really resonates with me um, is this idea of the, um, power of living. I think, I guess we talk about it a lot as living your values, but like, you know, the power of showing up day after day after day for that job, right? The power of saving up, you know, mm -hmm. year after year, right? The power of, of stewarding something mm -hmm. for the sake of your, you know, descendants, yes. the descendants of your descendants. Yes. Um, yep. That to me is is the hope is the is all of the hope is the idea that it you know there will be some meaning out of our efforts to make sense of this all we're going to help to lay a foundation for our kids who are going to solve the problems that we don't know how to solve um 
at least that's what keeps me going. Um, yeah. So, yeah, very grateful. Yeah, for and you today. know, I, I, so I'm going to say something else that I, I, I thought of was he was speaking, which is when he was talking about that community chest of saving up. Right. Yeah. Um, I thought of Tassica Lloyd again talking about collectivism, and again, mm-hmm. Tassica was from or is from the West Indies, like Collins' mm-hmm. uh, family, yep. and and so there was that sense of collectivism that they brought into their church, and. Uh, and 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 he said we're all we've got right and so yep. they they have that sense but if we're ever going to get to real equity the we has to be much broader yeah and he was talking he was speaking as a black man speaking of other black people and immigrant people but we can't keep making the john lewis's bear the brunt of the sacrifice. Mm-hmm. So as a white presenting person, what I'm really inspired to say is to the white folks out there, like, we have to sacrifice something. We have to put ourselves out there. And this is about a collective we, right? right. But, but, but there are some of us who have more privilege than others. And so it's, of course, I think it's powerful for people of color to talk, speak to their own communities about what they have. But it's also powerful for, for us white folks to recognize that we, if we want to have the type of society that we want to live in, and if we want to have a t- society that really is looking out for all of us, because sometimes it's going to be us too, mm-hmm. we have to do some of that sacrificing. We have to put ourselves out there. And Colin speaking that truth is the type of truth speaking that we have to be not shy away from, both yeah. to ourselves and to each other. Yep. So, all right, before we wrap up, Abram, you want to tell them about Apple Podcasts? Uh, yeah, I'd love to. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, if you guys could um, rate and follow us on Apple Podcasts. If you listen to any podcast, they're constantly asking you to do this, and that's because the way that people find out about podcasts is because in the Apple Store and the Apple Podcast engine specifically, things are recommended to them. I don't know why that's the way it works, but uh, somehow Steve Jobs figured out the future and has us all broadcasting to each other from our pods, and so... Uh, we're asking you uh, to do your part and go in and, and put in some stars. Even if it's not that many stars, uh, you know, you can leave us some critical <laughs> feedback. That's okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, help us out on Apple Podcasts. Also, you know, you can follow us on Twitter, at uh, Rad Bureau, B-U-R-E-A-U. Um, and uh, you can leave comments or questions there. Yeah. Colin's piece will be up at our Twitter page or at his Twitter handle as well. So let's also end by being good bureaucrats. The views expressed here are our personal opinions and do not reflect the official or unofficial position of any government agency, policy, party, leader, or really anyone besides the two of us, and maybe you, but maybe not. This content has not been sponsored or approved by anyone and was mostly just made because we wanted an opportunity to talk about things that matter to everyone, whether they realize it or not. Thanks for listening. Oh,